you haven't been paying attention for the last few minutes this morning, today marks the first of four Sundays preceding the birth of Jesus. The church has called this for many years the Advent season. It dates probably as far back as the late 5th century. Now for most people, Advent conjures up images of candles and greenery and liturgy. And you'd be right, because many churches celebrate that way. But oftentimes we shy away from Advent because we associate it with the Roman Catholic Church. And as a result, we try to avoid it altogether. We essentially are throwing out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. But before we get too sort of upset about it, let's look at what Advent really is. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus. I may have butchered that, Carol and Gay. But the meaning is the same. The meaning means coming or to come into. In its purest sense, it is nothing more than a celebration that anticipates the coming of Christ. Interestingly enough, many churches not only celebrate his first coming, but they celebrate the anticipation of the second coming during this Advent season as well. All that to say this, that for the next four Sundays, you're going to hear sermons focused around the birth of Christ, Advent season. Now, to be honest, when you think about sermons directed towards the birth of Christ, probably your first thought is drawn to Luke chapter 2, isn't it? You remember that story. It's a familiar story. There was a census that was to be taken, which caused Joseph and his pregnant wife to journey to Bethlehem. And there was no room for them at the inn. He was born in a feeding trough. He was announced by the angels to the shepherds who went immediately. They left their posts, went to Bethlehem to worship this king. In fact, most of us grew up watching the Charlie Brown Christmas where Linus famously quotes the entire section from Luke chapter 2, unheard of today. It is a beautifully written and theologically rich section of Scripture. But for us, it is the greatest announcement we could ever receive because the angel says this in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. That's your Savior? And that's my Savior, who is Christ the Lord. But as pertinent and as beautiful and as rich as it is, that's not where I want to preach from this morning. So instead of Luke chapter 2, I want, I want us to spend a few moments looking at Matthew chapter 2. So if you would, turn to that. Matthew chapter 2. If you know anything about the gospel of Matthew, you may know that its emphasis is on presenting Jesus as king through the lineage of Joseph, and that specifically being through the line of David. And in chapter 2, Matthew does this by looking back. In fact, he looks way back to prophecies given several hundred years prior to the birth of Jesus. So if you found your place in Matthew chapter 2, I want to begin reading in verse 1. And if you would, stand as I read this, if you're able. Beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 15. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi, and he determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they, f- they fell to the ground and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left f- for, they, for their own country by another way. And when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, and he took the child and his mother, while it was still night, left for Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Out of Egypt, I called my son. You may have a seat. Now you might ask, why would Matthew intentionally quote Old Testament prophets? And he doesn't just do it twice. He actually does it five times in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Passages that we didn't even read this morning. Why doesn't he just do what Luke did? Why doesn't he just point to the virgin birth? Why doesn't he just give the evidence of what the shepherds said? Well, I think there's three valid reasons why he doesn't do that. Number one is, I think, I think Matthew's intent, one of his intents, is to show the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This was Matthew teaching us that Christianity was not a first century creation. Christianity dated way back. Christianity was ancient all the way back to the prophets and even before them. Secondly, Matthew's main audience was Jewish. They would have been quite familiar with the Old Testament and its prophecies. Thirdly, this is what Jesus did. You remember in Matthew or in Luke chapter 24 where Jesus appears to the two men on the road to Emmaus. And listen to what he says in verse 27, how Luke records this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Listen, church, don't ever make the fatal mistake of thinking that because we are a New Testament church, we do not need the Old Testament anymore. 
If Jesus could go to every book in the Old Testament and point himself out to these men, then it behooves us to pay attention to what the Old Testament has to say, especially regarding Christ. Matthew understood this too. Look, you don't have to be a scholar to understand that Matthew's intent is to show that his birth is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Eric read one of them this morning earlier out of Matthew chapter 1. Isaiah says he's to be born of a virgin, and he was. Micah in chapter 2 tells us that he is to be born in Bethlehem, and he was. And then Hosea tells us that he would be called out of Egypt, and he certainly was. But fulfilling prophecy is not where Matthew begins to make his case for Jesus. Because in the beginning of his gospel, he documents the kingly line that Jesus was to be born into. So beginning with Abraham, Matthew records this for us. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Messiah, 14 generations. Jesus is saying through Matthew, that he is a direct descendant of Adam, he's a direct descendant of David, and he's a direct descendant of Joseph, who is in the line of David, Joseph being his earthly father. He is the rightful king by lineage. By lineage. But secondly, Matthew says Jesus is the rightful king by virgin birth. We just mentioned that. Again, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. No one, no one born before or after Jesus has ever been born of a virgin birth. No one. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Not in a test tube, not in a laboratory, but by the Holy Spirit. And the angel even confirms this to Joseph. And the angel says this in verse 20 of chapter 1. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child you have conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then finally at that point, this is where he quotes Isaiah, a prophecy that occurred, look, 600 years prior to the birth of Jesus. And he quotes this in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Someone of the likes of our beloved Joey calculated that the odds of one man fulfilling eight of these prophecies in Jesus is one in ten to the 17th power. That number is ten quadrillion. Now, in case you're having trouble sort of fathoming that and getting your mind around a number like that, let me see if I can help you out. There's one famous illustration that goes this way. Suppose we took an atheistic professor, blindfolded him, and covered the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Then we put a check mark on one of those silver dollars and mixed them up. 
the odds of one person fulfilling just these eight prophecies would be the same as this atheistic professor selecting the silver coin upon which we had just placed the check mark on his first try. But you know what? There weren't just eight prophecies. There were over 300. 300 prophecies. A professor and mathematician and astronomer by the name of Peter Stoner concluded this in his book, Science Speaks. He says this, Any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. End quote. The virgin birth, this is the first of Matthew's prophetic evidences, and probably for us, maybe the most familiar to us as well. In fact, for us as a Christian, this is literally a hill to die on. This is the hill to die on for our faith. As we said in our Wednesday night study a few weeks ago, at the onset of your salvation, you may not have understood the importance of it, but to deny it would exclude you from Christianity. Yeah, it's that big a deal. But for the remainder of our time, I want to look at two less familiar prophecies, those that I just read out of Matthew chapter 2. Less familiar, but nevertheless not less important. Because Matthew is using all of these prophecies to construct his case for Jesus as Messiah and as King. And what you'll notice first off that is in both of these prophecies, they deal with a location. A location. First one is Bethlehem, the second one is Egypt. Now, I didn't read the following, the rest of chapter 2. There are also two other location prophecies mentioned there, Ramah and Nazareth. But we're just going to focus on these two. And yet each one of these, even those four, is unique and serves as another sort of building block in validating who Jesus is. So why give four? Why give four prophecies if they all are located, if they all deal with locations? Because, and not to be too simplistic here, but four is better than three, right? Three is better than two, which is better than one. We just illustrated that earlier. And it helps, again, to establish for his readers that the birth of Jesus is not a coincidence. So, in Matthew 1 and in Matthew chapter 2, you have five prophecies, counting the one out of Isaiah, and all within the first couple of years of the life of Jesus. But let's look at the first two that are recorded in Matthew chapter 2, these lesser-known prophecies. Let me just read the first six verses again just so we can set the context in our mind. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. He gathered together all the chief priests, the scribes of the people, inquiring of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And then he quotes out of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are you, and are you by no means least 
among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The first location is Bethlehem, and he is quoting out of Micah chapter 5. But before we turn to that prophecy, let's look at the two main characters here that, that Matthew gives us. It is the Magi and it is Herod. First, the Magi. Verse 1 tells us they came from the east. They did. They came from a, a country, a region known as Persia, modern-day Iran. They came a long way away. Uh, we commonly refer to these men as who? As kings, right? Or as wise men. Those are the, those are the names that we've given them in our, in our songs. And tradition tells us that there were three of them. Now that may or may not be true. There may have been three. There may have been a dozen of them. We assume three because they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But we don't know for sure if it was just three or if it was more. Tradition also tells us that they appeared the night of his birth. That is blatantly false. Verse 11 says they came to his house. Not a barn, not a feeding trough, not a stall. Verse 16 says Herod slaughtered all male children two years and under. The assumption was that he could be as old as two at this time. But regardless, who are these men? Who are these quote-unquote wise men? Well, they were astrologers. They were stargazers. Don't, don't confuse that with astronomers. They were not that. They were astrologers. These men were philosophers. They were elite thinkers of their society. Just as a side note, scholars have debated for years as to whether these men were Jews or Gentiles. It's not actually an easy answer. Now, they were from Persia originally, and if they were from Persia, even at this time, it is possible that they were Gentiles because early on they would have been certainly Gentiles. But there is historical evidence that says they may have been Jewish, which is the possibility. So, short answer is we don't know. We really don't know. But I'll tell you what, I do find it interesting that they brought gifts and that their intent was worship, and to call him king of the Jews. That's the Magi. And then in verse 3, we see Herod. Herod, who catches wind of these men and their purpose for coming there. Now, I don't know what you know about Herod, but Herod was a very unstable man. He would, uh, we, would call, we would call him a loose cannon. In fact, to use our, our vernacular today, he is a national security threat. This is Herod. He was violent. He was jealous. He was insecure. Those are not qualities you want in somebody with the kind of power that he had. Judah, the region that, or Judea, the region that where Bethlehem was located, was not particularly large, but this was where Herod ruled. This was, this was his jurisdiction. And Herod would never tolerate, even to the slightest degree, a threat to his rule, even if that threat was only imagined. He had no toleration for this. He slaughtered three of his own sons, 
one of his wives, more than half the Sanhedrin, and 300 court officers. And just prior to his death, laying on his sickbed, he gathered some famous people in an arena, and at the moment of his death, he had ordered them to execute these people because he wanted to make sure that there was mourning at the time of his death, even if it wasn't for him. This is a twisted guy. But there's a third group here. Did you see this group? It's the chief priests and the scribes. These men knew where the Messiah was to be born. Herod came to them, he inquired of them, and immediately they came up with the answer. In Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. Why? Because the prophet wrote it. They fully understood the Old Testament. And so they directed Herod to the quote or to the prophecy that came from Micah. They knew it. They understood it. And yet did what? Nothing. Nothing. They didn't join the Magi. They don't worship. They don't bring gifts. And especially, especially, they do not acknowledge him as king of the Jews. There's an interesting parallel that's being developed here in the early chapters of Matthew. Here in chapter 2, you have Herod wanting to kill Jesus. In Luke 23, you have his last son, Herod Antipas, participating in the trials that put Jesus to death. As a baby, Jesus is silent at Herod's aggression here in this text. As a 33-year-old, he is once again silent before Herod. Herod is the only one he didn't respond to. In chapter 2, he is a lowly and humble baby. In Luke, he is a lowly and humble servant. Matthew is literally setting the stage here for the end of Jesus' life, and he's doing it here in the early chapters. The tension, the aggression, the animosity which began at the birth of Jesus would remain up and until and through his death. But what is this prophecy that Matthew quotes in verse 6? This is out of Micah, and you can turn to Micah if you like. If not, I'll read that. But Micah, was known, Micah is known to us as a minor prophet, not because his message has less significance, but simply because his prophecy is a shorter prophecy. It's shorter, but no less significant. And if you read Micah, you will see a common theme in Micah that you see in virtually all of the Old Testament prophets. And that theme is this, sin of Israel, judgment upon Israel, and restoration of Israel. Much of the prophecy, though, of Micah deals with the sin of Israel and the judgment that's coming upon Israel. But here in chapter 5, there is restoration. There is promise. Because in the midst of their sin and turning from God and in the midst of this just punishment that they receive, God remains faithful. God is preserving a remnant, a remnant of his people. And so in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says this, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, 
from the days of eternity. This was an unmistakable prophecy. This was so clear. Israel understood this. The scribes, the priests, they understood this. They immediately pointed Herod to this. So there was nothing veiled in this particular prophecy. Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus. But it's also the birthplace of some others as well, right? Of David. This is the, Bethlehem is the, what, city of, city of David. So David was born here. But even before David, there was Benjamin who was born there as well. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, according to Genesis chapter 35, Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, buried his beloved wife Rachel near Bethlehem after she died while giving birth to Benjamin. So Benjamin was born in Bethlehem. Rachel was buried just north of Bethlehem. In fact, she's the one who is described as the voice weeping and mourning for her children in verse 18 of chapter 2 of Matthew, the part I didn't read. So the prophet Micah says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, and he was. The second prophecy is found in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 2, out of Egypt, out of Egypt. Verse 13 says this, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother, while it was still night, and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Again, Matthew is quoting from another so-called minor prophet. This time, it's Hosea. And once again, Joseph is visited by an angel in a dream, and he's instructed to take the child and his mother, a phrase that's often repeated in the New Testament, and go to Egypt until he's told to come back. And so he does. So why Egypt? Why go to Egypt? What's the significance of Egypt? Well, Egypt during this time was, was the home to some estimated as, much as, a, as many as a million Jews living in Egypt at this time. And so this would be a friendly area for them to go to. This would be an area where they'd be welcomed, they'd be cared for. And so the angel says, go to Egypt, go to Egypt, you'll be safe there. And Matthew tells us then that, he, that they stayed there until Herod died, at which time then, verse 15 is the fulfillment, you are coming out of Egypt. And so he fulfills that. But let's look back at this prophecy of Hosea for just a minute. Hosea is perhaps maybe one of the more famous of the minor prophets for us. We probably know a little bit more about him than we do some of the others. He's famous for several reasons, most of which are not good ones. Number one is this, he married a woman named Gomer. I find that problematic. <laughs> Gomer is her name. But that's the least of Hosea's problems. Because secondly, God tells Hosea he is to marry a harlot. Gomer is a known 
harlot. And God says, you take her as your wife. And so he takes her. And then thirdly, he tells Hosea, not only is she going to be your wife, but she is going to bear for you three children. Three children through her. Oh, and their names, by the way? God will scatter, no compassion, and not my people. Look, <laughs> marriage is tough. It is tough, tough enough to deal with without marrying a prostitute and without having three children who are rebels who looks like they're going to spend the entire remainder of their life in your basement. This is Hosea. And yet, in the wisdom and the providence of God, this is his command. This is what he says to Hosea. In Hosea chapter 3, it states that he continued to love her. This is a picture of Israel and God, isn't it? This is God loving Israel in spite of who she is. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Then the Lord said to me, Go ahead, love a woman who is loved by her husband, you, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods. And then from chapter 3, then Hosea goes on to describe Israel's apostasy, their rebellion, their idolatry. In chapters 3 through chapter 10, he speaks of God's just punishment that's coming their way. All of this being pictured in Hosea's marriage to Gomer. And then in chapter 11, it's, it's as if God has paused for a moment here in, in 11 and he is reflecting on Israel's beginnings. And he says this, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The Lord continues using Hosea's wife as a picture of wayward and sinful Israel who has rejected her true husband, the Lord. But the prophecy is in verse 1, and it says, out of Egypt. Now, you would be familiar with this. If you were uh, a Jew living at that time, and you read that prophecy, you would have no problem understanding what the reference was that Hosea was giving. It was back to Exodus, wasn't it? He was referring back to Exodus. God used Moses to free his people from the bondage of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And you remember how it went. Moses pleaded over and over and over with Pharaoh to release the Israelites. Each time Moses pleaded, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and so a plague was sent to him. He would plead again, Moses, or, or Pharaoh would appear to soften his heart, only later to harden his heart, stiffen his back against Moses. Well, you know how it went. Eventually, after ten plagues and the death of his own son, Pharaoh commanded Israel to leave. And so that's where, that's where chapter 11, verse 1 comes in, where Israel comes out of Egypt. So they, they understood that. So then why does Matthew quote Hosea 11.1 1 if it's referring to another event that wasn't the birth of Christ? Well, because the parallel is unmistakable. This is unmistakable. You, you can't miss this. 
Israel is God's son in the same way that Jesus is God's son. That's his point. Did Hosea know that he was prophesying about Messiah? I doubt it. I doubt it. Then if he didn't know, then why record all of this? If, if he didn't know what he was really writing about, well, it's simple. Because he's building on revelation. Now, he, he may have some inkling of that, but God certainly knows that. He is building on revelation. He is adding for us more prophecy about the coming Messiah. And so he uses this as one of those building blocks. Sure, it was veiled to them. They, they probably, in, in all likelihood, didn't understand the far-reaching aspect of this prophecy. It was veiled. But now, through Matthew, we have the full sense of this. We do understand what this means. And Matthew tells us, by way of Hosea, he's saying this, that just as Israel was preserved from Pharaoh, so the Christ child was preserved from Herod. Right? God is not frustrated by evil plans of men. Amen? In John chapter 7, John says this, So they were seeking to seize Jesus, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Listen, no one, and I mean no one, thwarts God's plans. God is constantly and continually taking what is evil and using it for his glory. Herod's plan was to rid the world. He was to rid the world of any threat to his own throne, even if it was a divine threat. And yet, this was not some sort of problem that God had to sort of figure out and, and work out based on what Herod was doing. This threat was in the mind and the plan of God from eternity past, in the same way that Pharaoh's hardness of heart was known and planned from all of eternity as well. So those are the two prophecies. You have Micah and you have Hosea. Let's tie this together here. What we need to do, though, is we need to take a step back. We need to take a step back from Micah. We need to take a step back from Hosea. And we need to even take a step back from Matthew chapter 2. What is God teaching us? What is he teaching us Gentiles now here on the other side of the cross? Well, let me just list a few things that I think he's teaching. Number one is this. In Matthew chapter 2, you have the Magi who are worshiping Christ. And then the total polar opposite is you have Herod who hates him and wants him dead. Is that not the story of all the gospel writers that we read? That there is this, this dichotomy of these, of these two sort of sides in this. Those who love Jesus and worship him. And at the same time, those who hate him even to the point of death. We see that all throughout the Gospels. And honestly, it really is no different today either, is it? We see the exact same thing. Because the fact is, you're either for God or you're against Him. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area. You cannot straddle the fence on this one. You either worship Christ or you hate Him. Choose Christ and live. Worship Him like the Magi, because if you're not worshiping Jesus as Lord, then you're no different than Herod or Pharaoh. Secondly, 
God intends for us to see that the Old Testament is inseparably linked to the New Testament. Some have famously said this, Christ is concealed in the Old Testament, but he is revealed in the New Testament. Jesus himself taught the men on the road to Emmaus that all the Old Testament spoke about him. He taught his disciples as well in, later in Luke 24, just prior to his ascension, he says this, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's everything, he says, must be fulfilled. Must be fulfilled. And as I said last week in our Bible study hour, to reject or neglect the Old Testament is to reject the major teachings about Jesus. You, you have cut yourself off from over half of what the Bible teaches us about who Christ is. You cannot reject the Old Testament. Or let me put it this way. An Old Testament without Christ is a false religion. Christ is in the Old Testament. If you cut him out of that Old Testament, you have a false religion. Jesus himself taught that he was all throughout the Old Testament. And he taught it multiple times. Thirdly, third takeaway for us, God is not finished with Israel. God is not finished with Israel. Look, if you gain nothing more from, especially from this book of Hosea, let that be your takeaway. Let me, let me just read a quote to you from John Stott, his commentary on the book of Matthew. He says this, Matthew has a clear message for the readers of his day. By then, the Gentile mission was in full flood, and the tensions with Judaism had reached a snapping point. The temptation was to give up on the Jews would have been a very great one. But Matthew says, don't give up on the Jewish people. God has not given them up. He has a special purpose for them. It stretches far back to the dawn of time. It is from Jewish stock that Jesus was born. Do not forget it, he says. God is not finished with Israel. Fourthly, fourthly, there is encouragement in these passages. In these first 16 verses, I find great encouragement for those times when you feel that the enemy is winning. Jesus said this in John chapter 16, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Because in this world, you will have tribulation. But he says, take courage. I've overcome the world. Jesus has overcome this. Listen, there is never a moment when the devil is winning. Did you hear that? There is never a moment in your life when the devil is winning. What may seem like defeat is simply God working out his providential wisdom in your life. He is not winning, and he will not win. Think of, just think for a moment. Think of all the possible ways that the plan for Messiah to appear 2,000 years ago could have been altered or stopped altogether. Just think of the, the possibilities. Mary could have given birth one day earlier. The family could have stayed in Egypt 
They could have been lost in Egypt. They may have liked it in Egypt and said, we're just taking roots right here. They could have stayed in Bethlehem when the other baby boys were slaughtered. And Mary herself could have been stoned on charges of adultery before he was born. Not to mention the countless possibilities from within the Old Testament genealogy. To, to, for that plan to work out is simply mind-boggling. That he is working through all those generation after generation after generation to preserve a lineage that would come from both father and mother through them to Christ. Look, if God can cause his son to be born hundreds of years after the prophets predicted his incarnation and preserve his life at every turn and, uh, until he would come, 33 years later, it doesn't seem difficult to me for him to build his church when Jesus returns. Don't you think? So, keep pursuing Christ. Keep pursuing Christ. Don't stop doing your part in building the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? There is no stopping the building of his church. Do not let discouragement take that promise away from you, church. And then one final word. To those of you in this room who are still in your sins, those of you who in spite of the overwhelming evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be, yet still reject his lordship, to you the message is simple. If your life remains as it is, you have no hope in this world. No hope. You are without Christ, and when you die you will step into an eternity of agony and torment as you pay for your sins because you have infinitely offended a holy God. And because you have, you will infinitely pay for your offenses to this holy God. Unless, unless you surrender to Christ, come as one who the Bible describes as spiritually bankrupt, Repent of your sins. Come by faith, trusting Christ, trusting His promises to pay for every last sin of yours. And His promises are true. He will. He will do that. Let me close with this, these familiar words from the mouth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is what? Light. Let's pray. Father, for us to even begin to reason and rationale in our own mind how you could work this amazing story out of preserving Christ through the threats, through, through centuries, millennia of genealogies is just 
is just a reality too much for our minds to comprehend. And yet it's clear that you've done that. All of the prophecies that you spoke about regarding the birth of Jesus have been fulfilled. Every one of them, exactly as the prophets have said. And so now, Lord, as we read other prophecies about Christ, we read prophecies about His second advent, we are encouraged. We're encouraged because if just those few prophecies about His birth, as miraculous as they are, could be true, then it gives us great confidence to know that the prophecies regarding the return of Christ are just as true. We know you are coming back, Lord. And so for us as a church, Lord, my prayer is that we would be about the work of a church. That we would look like a church. That we would act like a church. That we would be a reflection of Christ to the community that we live in and the community that we, that we serve. And so, Lord, make us like Christ for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of his church, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, please, and sing hymn number 213 in your hymn book. My hope is in the Lord. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. For me he died, for me he lives, and everlasting life and light he freely gives. No merit of my own, his anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. For me, he died. For me, he lives. And everlasting light and life He freely gives. And now for me He stands before the Father's throne. He shows His wounded hands and names me as His own. For me He died. For me he lives, and everlasting light and life he freely gives. His grace has planned it all, tis mine but to believe, and recognize his work of love and Christ receive for me. He died for me, he lives, and everlasting light and life he freely gives. No merit of my own, only the righteousness of Christ. I hope that's your prayer this morning. Praise God that he keeps his promises, and he will keep all of his promises as he has 
in the coming of Christ. Well, I hope that you'll sign up for the opportunities to serve this week. Also, I uh, hope members that you'll gather together tonight in your small groups. And so as we go this day, I want to leave you with this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed. <laughs>